The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 95. Hi, I'm John Acuff, author of Do Over, Rescue Monday, Reinvent Your Work, and Never Get Stuck. Of all the great podcasts out there, only a handful have been nominated Best Business Podcast, and you found one of them. It's the Read to Lead podcast with my friend, Jeff Brown. Individuals today have more power to affect their lives, to affect the lives of other people than, you know, individuals have in any previous century. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast with Jeff Brown. Jeff believes that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then consistent and intentional reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast will not only help you narrow this ever important reading list, but also bring you key insights and valuable feedback from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. And now here's Jeff. Hi there, welcome. I am Jeff, and this is the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth, where each week we sit down with a successful and inspiring author. We chat about his or her latest book and unique insights in areas like leadership, personal development, productivity, career, marketing, business, entrepreneurship, and much more. In today's episode, you and I are in for a treat because we're going to be joined by Taylor Pearson. He's the author of The End of Jobs, Money, Meaning, and Freedom Without the 9 to 5. I plan to ask Taylor about the transition we're experiencing as a culture from a knowledge economy to an entrepreneurship economy and what that means, why globalization and technology are affecting not just low-skilled jobs, but even highly credentialed jobs, the issue of the rising cost of college with the simultaneous decrease in the relevance of a degree and what to do about it, and much more. If you're like me and have read the plethora of articles that have come out in the last couple of years about how we need to get out from behind our desks and stand more, maybe you've considered a stand-up desk. Right now, I'm trying out a stand-up desk from the UpDesk company. been using it for about a week. Uh, they've agreed to loan it to me for a month, and so far, I absolutely love it. If you'd like to find out more about what they do, visit readtoleadpodcast.com slash desk. Up desks are motorized and can go from standing position to sitting position in just a matter of seconds. Again, that link, readtoleadpodcast.com slash desk. Here at Read to Lead, we're also thrilled to be supported in part by SoFi, a leading marketplace lender. They can save you thousands when you refinance your federal and private student loans at lower rates. As a Read to Lead listener, you can take advantage of a special $200 welcome bonus when you refinance your student loans. Just go to SOFI.com slash Read to Lead and accelerate your success with a smarter loan. Well, Taylor Pearson has spent the last three years meeting with hundreds of entrepreneurs from Los Angeles to Vietnam, Brazil to New York, and worked with dozens of them in industries from cat furniture to dating, helping them to grow their businesses. Regardless of industry, age, race, country, or gender, one simple fact stood out to Taylor. 
entrepreneurship was dramatically more accessible, profitable, and safer, while jobs were riskier and less profitable than the public is typically led to believe. Now, based on hundreds of interactions and dozens of recent books and studies, Taylor wrote the book, The End of Jobs, to show you how you could invest in entrepreneurship to create more freedom, meaning, and wealth in your life. Taylor, I'm thrilled to have you here today. Welcome officially to the Read to Lead podcast. Thank you very much for having me on, Jeff, and thanks everyone for uh, tuning in and listening. What has changed over the last century, uh, and even the last uh, 20 years or so, that in your mind, Taylor, spells the end of jobs as, as they've been traditionally understood? So the two big factors um, that I see that are changing are globalization, more specifically outsourcing, uh, and kind of the rate of progress of technology. Um, so there's a there's a story I tell in the book that uh, AT&T commissioned McKinsey and Company in 1980 to do a study of how many cell phone users they thought would be in the U.S. in 2000. So they were predicting 20 years out into the future, uh, and they spent millions of dollars on the study. And um, McKinsey concluded they're going to be around um, 900,000 cell phone um, cell phone users in 2000, and there were. Um, around 120 million. So they were off by, um, you know, two orders of magnitude by 100 and, 120 times. Mm. Um, and so I think that's kind of, um, I guess it's a good parable in a sense that these changes, which everyone kind of knows, everyone understands the world, you know, to say the world is becoming more globalized and outsourcing is happening and technology is developing is all kind of blasé and people get that. But what has really changed over the last 20 years in particular is the rate at which that's happening. And that kind of where I think a lot of people um, are making the same mistake McKinsey made in 1980 of underestimating um, how vast the implications of that are going to be over the next two decades. Well, speaking of which, there was a, another stat in particular that stood out to me related to this, and I'd love you to, to, to spend some time sort of breaking this down for us. And I'm talking about this change from the last half of last century to the first half or first 15 years of this century. And the change I'm talking about is job growth versus population. I think everybody needs to hear this. Yes. So there was a study that came out from Kleiner Perkins just maybe six months ago. Right as I was finishing the book, I actually saw this stat. If you look at job growth relative to population growth from 1948 to 2000, so the second half of the 20th century, um, jobs grew 1.7 times faster than population. So both were rising, but um, the number of jobs available was rising faster. And so there was, you know, we went through this post-World War II period of basically um, abundant job growth, that there was more more jobs available than there were individuals that could fill that jobs. Um, and since 2000, it's been a very, very different story that population has actually grown 2.4 times faster than jobs. So, you know, not only um, has it reversed, but it's reversed even faster. <laughs> and all of a sudden, whereas, you know, you project this trend out, you can see where things are going. Well, what, what would you say to the person who's listening right now and says, no, wait a second, uh, more jobs are moving overseas, and that's not fair. Uh, you know, we're in the beginnings of a, a new political cycle here in the states, and a lot of politicians are, uh, you know, campaigning on things like, or will be soon, creating new jobs and, and taking jobs that have been traditionally going overseas and bringing them back. Is that really the way to solve the problem, or do we need to um, acquiesce to the fact that that's going to happen anyway, and we need to prepare people for a new economy? Yeah, I'll start with the caveat to say I don't. Um, I'm not a politician, nor do I understand the political system that well. <laughs> but I think, I think there's a real, real danger. And um, I, 
I call this the agency problem sometimes that we have this tendency to attribute agency to other individuals or other institutions. Mm. Um, and we say things like, you know, jobs are overseas, jobs are going overseas. What should we do? And when, you know, who it's never clearly defined who the we is. <laughs> um, and I think the point, you know, it's, the book is called the end of jobs and it's fundamentally a, an optimistic book. Um, the point is that you, the individual, um, you know, listening to this podcast, um, have the ability to create job growth. Um, that's kind of the story of entrepreneurship that you as an individual, because of these same tools, which are endangering jobs, um, you know, outsourcing and globalization and technology, they're also enabling people who kind of want to take the tools into their own hands um, and go create new opportunities. Um, so I think that's whether it's fair or not, I think it's kind of irrelevant. The punchline in my mind is um, you can create jobs. Well, why, uh, in your opinion, uh, Taylor, is, is globalization and, and technology affecting now not just low-skilled jobs, which has been the case for a while, but even highly credentialed jobs more and more? So there is a, uh, a framework I talk about in the book. It's called the Kinevin Framework. It was um, developed as, a, I think, an IBM management consultant. And basically, it, it breaks work down into simple task, complicated task, complex task, and chaotic task. And when we look at the way economies have moved over the last roughly 400 years in the West, mm. um, they have this tendency to move from um, simple to complicated to complex is kind of the transition we're in now. So, you know, simple tasks, or if you look at most industrial or agricultural work, um, you could document, like put together an Ikea, um, an Ikea bedside table, right? They give you the documents and you just follow the instructions mm. and put things together. And that's, um, that's what a lot of agricultural work looks like. And that's what um, a lot of industrial work looks like. And kind of the 20th century was this story of moving from simple into complicated work. We went from like clearly defined best practices into, um, good practices that you, you know, went to university or you got a graduate degree and you um, learned kind of what the better practices, the good practices were. And then you had to go out into the marketplace um, and, and apply, you know, 80% of what you learned and maybe figure out, you know, 20% of the new stuff. Um, and now we're seeing that shift from complicated to complex where um, kind of the inverse, the, it's the inverse ratio, right? It's like maybe you mm. can figure out 10 or 20%, but a lot of it you just have to do by getting your hands in the system. It, the system has become so complex because of technology, because of globalization, that the demands most businesses are facing um, aren't being well met by traditional education systems. And if you talk to someone that's taken a, um, I have friends that took online marketing classes in college and it's, um, it's basically laughable because by the time they document this stuff and put it in a textbook, um, <laughs> it doesn't, you know, it's useless. It doesn't, mm. what does it work at all anymore? Um, and the mm. people that are figuring that out are very much kind of the practitioners in the trenches. Well, well to that end, uh, uh, one of the things that I appreciate about having done this show the last couple of years is uh, I found that there are a lot of, of educators who listen. I even know of some who have, talk to me about having implemented the podcast into their curriculum. So there are a lot of forward-thinking educators, educators trying to think outside the box as to how they, how they relate to students and that sort of thing. But I think they, too, understand that, as you say in the book, the cost of college and graduate school continues to go up as the value of that education uh, decreases. And so that begs the question, how do we fix this? How do we fix our schools, I guess, is what I'm ultimately asking. And is that even the, the right question to ask? Is it beyond fixing? And what, what, would your, what would your assessment of that be? That's a broad question, I know, but, but 
what can be done there or, or is there anything that can be done? I guess as an individual, um, if you're considering, you know, going into a graduate program or investing more in um, some type of formal education, um, I think the default mentality has been like, that's always a good choice. Um, that in the statistics have very much backed that up for much of the 20th century that, um, you know, over the long run, over the course of a career, it was almost always a good idea to um, go back to school and invest in degrees. And I think as we see the cost of those degrees continue to increase. Um, and I think we see the value of them continue to fall. If you look at like some studies of um, what's happened with MBA and law school degrees over the last five to 10 years, that the, the value of those degrees over a career has stalled or in some cases um, decreased at the same time as um, the cost has increased. Mm. Um, so I think as an individual to kind of um, to discard that assumption and to do, you know, a very clear analysis of whether or not that's the case. And I'm sure there's, you know, in rocket science, like that probably still is the case. Um, and in a lot of other fields, you know, the two I kind of mentioned in the book that I've done some more research on are um, uh, MBAs and law school degrees, that it's very questionable how how valuable those are. Mm-hmm. Um, from the perspective of an educator, um, I'm not sure I have a good answer. It's a very, it's certainly a very challenging question. I think in order to reverse that um reverse that trend, there's going to be some pretty dramatic changes into um, how courses, how universities or institutions like universities, credentialing institutions, um, how they generate value for their customers, their students. Um, I am very bullish on um, like apprenticeships or um, like quality internships and not making coffee, but actually (laughs) going to work in a small business or, um, a high growth company where you can kind of get your hands dirty and supplementing that with, um, you know, if you're doing it yourself, like autodidactic reading, listening to podcasts, um, or doing it with coursework, but I'm not sure how viable the pure coursework is for the majority of the population over, over the next 20 years. Well, share a bit about what you've identified as, as limits, Taylor, how they work and the idea that instead of pushing harder, we should figure out where, to push. Yeah. So there is a book called, um, the goal by uh, a guy named Ellie Goldratt. Mm. Um, and he was basically, he developed this very, um, forward thinking, this very innovative, uh, software for factory managers. Um, and what he realized was that they couldn't use the software effectively, um, because they had a certain mental model for how factories worked. Um, and that he had to change their mental model around that factory, um, to get them to use the software effectively. It wasn't a software problem. It was kind of this um, teaching people to see the world in a different way. And the way he kind of explains that um, is that if you look at any given system, there's always a limit. Um, and that working to address the limit will always provide much, much better returns than working to address something else. So if you give the example of someone trying to get in shape, let's say they're, um, they're going to the gym every single day and they're spending um, two hours in the gym every morning from 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. Um, but after the gym, they go and they have you know, two scones at Starbucks. <laughs> and then before the gym, you know, they're um, waking up very early and then maybe they're staying up late you know, talking with their spouse or whatever, and they're only getting five hours of sleep. So they're, um, you know, they're eating, their diet isn't very good and they're not getting enough sleep. Um, so even though they're going to the gym every day, 
they're not going to see very good results. Mm. Um, so the limit in this system is, you know, like diet and sleep and not exercise. And you talk to someone that's been in that situation, and I know because I was in that situation, mm. um, I started exercising much less, and I got much more serious about my diet and getting better sleep. Um, and even with less inputs, spending like less time working on my um, health, I was able to get better results. And so that's mm. kind of the argument I'm making that I think – we're at this point where the limit is um, entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial mindset and entrepreneurial thinking um, and that investing more in that as opposed to investing in kind of traditional um, traditional notions of knowledge is a, um, a higher ROI, a safer, um, a more profitable decision. Well, what advice, uh, Taylor, would you have for somebody who is, say, right now in a traditional job and they don't want to wake up one morning to find that they've been downsized or handed their pink slip? What are some ways they can begin preparing now or some steps they might consider taking to be ready to transition from knowledge work to entrepreneurial type work? The first thing is to try and make that position more entrepreneurial. Mm. Um, And so I think uh, I was talking with a friend um, whose background was in accounting um, and the company they were working at, they were trying to do, uh, my friend was trying to do some kind of innovative things um, in the accounting, like to streamline the processes and to make them more efficient. Like, you know, it took um, X number of hours to fill out these reports, but if they had kind of re- engineered the system, they could have done it maybe in, in 25% less time. Mm. Um, and their, their boss says, you know, don't touch the system. Everything's <laughs> fine. Just leave it alone. Of course. Um, and so, yeah, I think the first is to kind of see if you can take a more entrepreneurial approach to your existing career um, and see whether the position facilitates that. And so I think there's lots of forward thinking companies who do facilitate that. Um, and it's very, you know, typically those companies will grow and people can grow along with them. Um, but uh, unfortunately, a lot of companies are, are like my friends where, you know, he tried to improve the system and make it more effective. And they said, just don't touch it. Um, and so figuring out first if you're you're in that position or not. And if you are in a position where you feel like um, they're not really accepting your kind of your more entrepreneurial approach um, to start looking at other avenues for how you can do that. So whether that's moving into a different position, into a different company, um, into like an apprenticeship type position where maybe um, you have more freedom and autonomy um, to be more entrepreneurial in the role and you can kind of grow personally and also help the company grow in that role um, or to look at kind of um, like a side hustle. I, I use the term stair step in the book, kind of a small project you can start working on on the side that could eventually become a full-time business or entrepreneurial career. Well, as I talk to people, and I used to be in this camp myself, when they think about entrepreneurship versus traditional work, they think of entrepreneurship as being high risk. And I'd like for you to touch on the difference between entrepreneurial risk, as you think about it, and what you call silent risk, the kind of risk that most of us accumulate in our jobs. Yes, I was very influenced by um, the thinking of Nassim Taleb. He's written a couple books or a few books, the best of which, in my opinion, is anti-fragile. And he developed this kind of new notion of risk based on what he saw was going in um, into public markets, into people um, Mm. doing stocks and bonds. And I kind of borrow his notion and apply it to careers, which is this idea that um, traditionally we think of Um, things as being safe because they've always been safe and we don't see um, future unforeseen events. So if you kind of take the analogy of um, a turkey, um, the the life of a turkey 
uh, is day after day, this like self-reinforcing notion of life getting better and better, right? You're born the turkey and um, you earn the turkey pin and the butcher comes out and he feeds you. Um, and every day um, for the first few years of your life, you're reinforced with this notion um, that you are getting fed and that life is getting better and better. That on you know day 150 of your life as a turkey, for the last 150 days, everything has gotten better and better and better. And of course, when, you know, the day before Thanksgiving or Thanksgiving morning comes, all of a sudden um, you've accumulated all this silent risk, right? You are now the fattened turkey. You can't quite run away from the butcher. You're stuck in the pen. Um, and that despite everything else looking safe up until that point, um, that's a very, very risky position to be in. Um, and so I think the the notion of risk, as most people think about it, is they're trying to avoid you know, small risk or visible entrepreneurial risk, which are um, easier to catch earlier on. And they're exposing themselves to these potentially larger downsides. Like going back to this example of, um, you know, my friend, the accountant, like when that firm downsizes their accounting firm, um, even though they wouldn't let him fix the system and now they're having to lay off people because the system is inefficient, like he's still out of job. Mm. Um, so he's basically shouldering all the risk of the company without any um, of the potential upside because it wasn't the type of company that would let him work on improving those systems. Mm. Well, we talked earlier a little bit about the rising costs of education. And if that's something that you're still paying for in the form of uh, student loans, you'll want to be sure and find out more about one of our sponsors, SoFi. They're bringing to you in part the Read to Lead podcast today, and they are a leading marketplace lender offering student loan refinancing, mortgages, and personal loans as well. Now, if you're carrying high student loan balances, you could save thousands by refinancing and consolidating your federal and private student loans at a lower rate. SoFi borrowers save on average of about $14,000 over the life of their loans. And in addition to savings, SoFi members benefit from their unemployment protection. Should you lose your job, SoFi pauses your payment and provides access to a career services team for personalized career planning and job search assistance. Pretty cool. Check out a full list of products and benefits. Visit this special web page they've set up just for you, sofi.com slash read to lead. And for a limited time, as a listener to this show, you're eligible for a special $200 welcome bonus when you refinance your student loans with SoFi. Again, just go to sofi.com slash read to lead for this special offer. And as always, all loans are made by the SoFi Lending Corp. NMLS number 1121636 and CFO license number 6054612. Citing one of my favorite books, uh, The Long Tail by Chris Anderson, Taylor says there are three things that are making entrepreneurship more accessible than ever. And I'd like to spend a few minutes, Taylor, uh, touching on each one of these, if you don't mind, uh, starting with the democratization of the tools of production. So, yeah, the, the first force he talks about is um, basically that it's easier to make something. And so I'm, I'm going to use your podcast as an example, if you'll let me, Jeff. Sure. What the conversation we're having now and the conversation that listeners are listening to was something that could only be done um, with uh, tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars of radio equipment, um, you know, access to uh, AM, FM radio. And I don't even understand how that systems work, to be honest, but I, <laughs> I assume you paid some sort of fee to get access to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was 20 years ago. That that was the only way. I, the very, very early rise of podcasting was maybe 10 to 12 years ago. And it's only in the last couple of years that it's kind of 
um, started to get really popular, mm-hmm. but that what costs, you know, tens of thousands of dollars um, 10 years ago or 20 years ago um, now costs, you know, maybe a, a few hundred dollars to get some basic sound recording equipment set up and to use a free um free call recording service or Skype or, you know, something that's very reasonably priced. And that this is something that's going on um, across industries in the music industry, like, you know, garage band and all these programs where you can record things cheaply for lots of businesses that are moving off of um, having to pay for expensive software. They're using software as a service. Um, these democratization of the tools of production that all you need to um, produce value has gone from, you know, buying a store on Main Street and buying expensive equipment to, um, you know, having a WordPress website uh, that costs 20 bucks um, and a podcast mic. And it very much now like those tools are in the individual's hands. And that leads right into the second one, uh, democratization of distribution. And I guess at its core, we're, we're talking about the Internet, basically, right? We are. And, and kind of these platforms that emerge on the Internet. So kind of continuing with this example of your podcast, right? Like it's on iTunes, it's on Stitcher, it's available through your website that you used to have to pay access, uh, pay to get access to kind of the radio airwaves. Mm. Um, and now that's, uh, again, like free or, um, you know, if you pay to have it hosted, a, a very, a very nominal cost relative to what you were looking at even two decades ago, that being able to get this out there. I um, mean, I used to edit and produce a podcast. Um, and we remember looking at the listenership numbers and we had a conversation with, um, a morning radio DJ and we had more listeners than the morning radio DJ. Um, and again, like didn't have access to kind of any of his traditional distribution. We were just going through the internet. And then the, the third thing that Taylor says it's making entrepreneurship more accessible is new markets are revealed every day. The other property of the internet in this sense is, um, markets which weren't viable for geographic reasons are now viable. So, you know, your podcast, if it's only available, in um, Nashville, Tennessee, or in the 100-mile radius around Nashville, doesn't have near the listenership it has. I'm sure if you surveyed your listeners, I expect they're um, all over the country and probably all over the world. Mm, 145 Um, countries, yeah. Yeah. So to be limited in the traditional geographic sense, there were only so many businesses that kind of the economics of retail allowed. You know, if you are creating a movie um, and you couldn't get into movie theaters, you weren't one of the top 200 movies that year, mm-hmm. you um, you basically didn't get your movie seen. Whereas now if you look at like Netflix um, or YouTube even, um, you can create a movie and anyone can turn around and watch it. And if people like it and you market it well, you could be a movie producer and a movie director. Um, and that those new market verticals, you know, people that are interested in uh, listening to podcasts with nonfiction and business authors is a really um, viable business opportunity in this like post-internet age. Mm. Well, I have some questions uh, for you, Taylor, not directly related to the book. But before I get to those, I always like to ask if there's anything else from the book you want to make sure we know about. No, you were quite thorough with the questions. That's great. <laughs> I'm glad. Good, good. Well, Taylor reads about 60 books a year, so he's got me beat by at least 10 or so. Taylor, name for us, if you can, a couple of books you've read or are currently reading that have had a huge impact on you. And share, if you can, why or how they've impacted you as they have. So let me try and go with a few maybe lesser known books. Mm, okay. Um, See if I can come up with a surprise. Um, one book that has a big influence on me, and I'm not even sure you would call it a book. It's actually um, a PDF, but it's 150 pages, so I'll, I'll call it a book, is um, 
a document called Principles. Um, it's by Ray Dalio, D-A-L-I-O. If you Google Dalio Principles, it'll pop up. Mm. Um, and he is the manager of a hedge fund in Connecticut called Bridgewater, um, which is one of the most profitable hedge funds on earth. I mean, it basically lays out his principles for um, how he manages himself, his kind of personal productivity development approach to life, and also his management principles for the company. Um, so in a very, very competitive environment, hedge funds are, I think, what well, perhaps the most competitive industry on earth, you could argue. He's been able to be very, very successful over um, a 20 plus year career, consistently beating average hedge fund returns, which is, um, from the people I know in finance, a very, very impressive feat. So I think that one made a big impact on me. I think the biggest thing is uh, he's a real advocate for transparency mm. and the power of transparency um, to create real business results. Another book that is a big influence on me is uh, Anti-Fragile by Nassim Taleb, mm. um, which I mentioned previously. And he is, um, the book is profound because I feel it, it is a critique of modernity as we live in modernity. Mm -hmm. Often like you have to get some historical perspective to see all the things that were wrong. And it feels like he's been able to point out a lot of those things as we are in the midst of them and kind of give us the opportunity to change them. And particularly around this idea of um, how we think about risk, like what does risk really mean mm. um, in the modern era? Um, and then I'm sure people heard The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. For anyone in oh, yeah. creative or leadership positions, um, I think it's it's a must read. It had a profound impact on me. And I probably read it half a dozen times in the last three years. Well, I want to touch briefly on just the concept of leadership and how you think of it. If you were to distill all that you've learned about leadership down to a central theme or concept, what would that be? It was interesting as part of the uh, book launch, I went back and I reviewed my notes from um, about 180 business books I'd read mm -hmm. um, over the past three to five years. Um, and I was doing it because I was I wanted to do a giveaway and I was trying to figure out which books I wanted to give away and which ones were the most impactful on me. And it was like really interesting going through all these books that I saw this like strange genealogy start to emerge. Um, and my basic conclusion was that every business book ever written is basically about focus. Mm. And that as, as it gets harder and harder to focus, I think um, we are probably the first generation that will be defined um, more by what we say no to than by what we say yes to. Mm. That the demands on everyone's time are increasing so much, the value of focus is increasing. Um, and so I think one of the main ways I've started to think about um, leadership and, and leading individuals and leading companies is focusing on um, kind of what those one to three key priorities are, whether that's key priorities in your life, your family, your health, um, or, you know, key priorities in the business. Are you by chance a fan of either uh, The One Thing by Gary Keller or Essentialism by Greg McEwen? I am. I've, I've uh, read both books and actually I met with Gary Keller's co-author uh, mm. a couple of weeks ago. So yes, I'm, I'm quite the fan of that mm -hmm. book. Excellent. Excellent. Well, to those whose uh, lives you've had a chance to touch, family, friends, colleagues, uh, clients, at the end of your life, Taylor, what do you hope to be remembered for the most? The thing that really gets me excited, and this is part of what motivated me to write the book is I think every generation sort of has this, uh, the own delusion that they're the special generation. I, I guess I'm kind of suffering from that same delusion. I think <laughs> today is the best day um, mm. to be alive. And I think it is the best day to be alive because this transition in the West that we've gone through um, over the last three or 400 years has really been one, in a lot of ways of the, the democratization or the distribution of power mm. um, that individuals today and, coming back to this notion of agency, 
have um, more power to affect their lives, to affect the lives of other people than, you know, individuals have in any previous century, you know, traditionally heads of religious institutions or heads of state or heads of large corporations had lots of power to affect individuals. But these kind of these notions we've talked about with the long tail and what's going on with technology have moved, have kind of moved that nexus of power much, much closer to the individual. And so I'm, I'm very passionate about helping people realize that and see that and um, take hold of that to kind of seize that agency to affect their lives in ways they personally find meaningful, whatever that is for them. Mm. Well, I know the book's been out now for a couple of months. Uh, what's next on the horizon for you? What are you, you and your team working on now that uh, you're excited about? If you can, if you can share. Yeah. Uh, well, right now I am recording an audio book actually. Um, so I started that last week. And then I'm continuing to do some promotion for the book and kind of figuring out what's um, what's next in all the ways. I don't have clear plans for it. I think one thing I've gotten excited about is um, connecting people with apprenticeship opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've set up I have a, a Facebook group that if you look in the book, you can go to the URL um, and trying to connect people with kind of more entrepreneurial roles where they can I think have better opportunities for their career and also connect small businesses or startups with people looking for entrepreneurial roles. So I think going back to this idea of um, how does education need to change? I think that's a profound way it does. And um, I'm interested on in what I can do to contribute to that. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a number one Amazon business bestseller. Uh, One of my favorite people, James Altucher loves it. Uh, It's called the end of jobs, money, meaning, and freedom without the nine to five. And the author is our guest today, Taylor Pearson. Taylor, thank you so much for being a part of the show today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on. And thank you everyone for taking the time to listen. For more on the resources, links, and books that Taylor and I spoke about today, just visit the website, readtoleadpodcast.com slash zero nine five. In just a few weeks, I won't be saying zero anymore at the beginning of that number. It's kind of hard to believe. Feel free to reach out to Taylor on Twitter as well. He's at Taylor Pearson Me on Twitter. Pearson, by the way, is P-E-A-R-S-O-N. We'll link to that in the show notes as well. If you're in the market for a stand-up desk, don't forget about UpDesk. Even if you work in an office environment where getting a new desk isn't an option, you might want to consider uh, what they call their pop-up, which uh, is an attachment for an existing desk that will allow you to raise and lower a monitor and keyboard and be able to stand up at that desk you're already working at. Again, to find out more about what UpDesk is doing and to thank them for their support of the podcast, visit readtoleadpodcast.com slash desk. Finally, if you'd like to connect with other Read to Lead listeners, one great way to do that is to join our private Facebook group. If you're in the States, send the phrase Read to Lead, all one word, no spaces, to 33444. That's Read to Lead to 33444. Outside the U.S., just visit readtoleadpodcast.com slash group. Well, that does it for this episode. I look forward to seeing you next time for the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Read to Lead podcast. As a subscriber, we challenge you to be more than just a passive listener. Become a vital member of the community. Visit us on the web at readtoleadpodcast.com. Until next time, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Ladies, 
At Essentia Health, you're not just a patient. You're a partner in your healthcare journey. We'll get to the heart of your health questions, even the ones you're embarrassed to ask. We'll find solutions to fit your unique needs and lifestyle, because here, we're in it together. Feel confident in your care and in yourself. Schedule a women's health appointment with an Essentia Health provider today. Click the banner to learn more.